0: The Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subisati. How you doing, Andrea? I'm all right. Are
1: you all right? Happy October. Happy spooky season. spooky season. It's here at last, and it's like it is every year, where I'm like, yay, it's spooky season. Too bad I have no time to enjoy
0: it. And why would we ever want you to enjoy anything, and why should you ever be able to enjoy anything?
1: This is the one time a year where it's like, never let you your passion become your job. (laughs) This is the one time a year where that really makes sense to me.
0: Yeah, and we're tackling an episode that has been truly an honor to watch Andrea process from the sidelines. Was
1: this a gift to me? Was this kind of a, let's, let's do this for Andrea.
0: No, it it kind of came about when we were doing our 10th anniversary show and we were putting together all those trivia questions. Uh And one of the questions was like, what is the highest grossing horror film of all time? Uh Which is it chapter one. And I think that just like stuck in my brain. Like this is all not adjusted for inflation numbers. Um, But it was just like, wow, really? That one? Yeah. I really was like if this were any other podcast if I was in some horrible universe where I wasn't doing a podcast with Andrea Subasati I'm not sure I would ever want to do this episode but Andrea is like the number one it book fan yeah and I remember these films came out and you were really like not impressed with them but we never really talked about it Mm
1: -hmm, because I was not a fan of them either I was contractually obligated (laughs) not to talk about it. This is a film that it's a franchise that I'm very very close to. As Alex just mentioned, this is probably my favorite book of all time, my favorite horror property of all time. If you're a long-time listener, you might remember like episode 2 when we talked about the scenes that scared us so badly.
0: Yeah, and it was interesting because um we talked about the It mini series for Andrea and mm-hmm. then I picked Pet Cemetery, mm-hmm. the Mary Lambert film and uh yeah, two Stephen King iconic stories. Oh, yeah.
1: yeah. Is that still your scary, like 10 years later?
0: It's definitely one of them. I, I was re watching um, the original Pet Cemetery for my Cats and Horror lecture that I've been doing this last year. Uh-huh. And I have to leave the room when the Zelda scenes come on. Yeah. I, I, I actually can't
1: handle it. Okay. I'm okay. going. Um, but yeah, uh, it chapter one came out big motherfucking deal. And when it comes to room magazine and these big, big studio titles, I often can't get what I need in time to make them into room That's partially because, you know, they're really tight on how they want to release information. They're not able to get me screeners early. Um, the press junkets are huge and they're timed very close to release. And so in the case of it, when it chapter two came around, Warner Brothers, on the success of chapter one, they did this giant press influencer junket thing where they actually hired a PR firm that put together a Canadian losers club. Mm. It was an American losers club. They tried to pick people from different industries. Yeah. And so I was the journalist in the Canadian losers club. So you were the bill? Uh, interesting. Interesting interesting let me think about that okay. but there was a there was a tattoo artist there was a fashion designer there was oh, an the influencer best. and there was uh, wade mcneil was there from alexis on fire oh. uh, trevor henderson was there yeah. the three of us actually got along really really well and like that press junket was so stacked i have never been so soaked in merchandise and it's mm. it merchandise and like even though I didn't love the chapter two movies I really enjoyed having like uh, an apron that looks like Pennywise's outfit I got a little model of the boat I got that fucking statue the statue that, that is-, is still outside of your home <laughs> So it's a little miniature of Georgie that Warner Brothers was putting all over Toronto when it premiered and they gave me one and it's it's this little like raincoat and jeans and galoshes on a stand and I've kept it outside for a full year now. It's not rotten, it's not grimy, it'd probably look cooler if it was but to this day I see people walk by and kind of slow down and be like, is that a kid? <laughs> what is that? And I think our neighbors were like, oh, it's a Halloween decoration. No, no, it's April and she hasn't taken it down. That's, that's just going to be there uh anyway they flew me out they flew me to the premiere there were art shows there were installations there were amusement park things the premiere was a red carpet event I was photographed on the red carpet I was there with the full cast and crew and then the after party was amazing I met Issa Lopez oh nice um I had such a such a blast but like in the contract it was like you can't talk poorly or even talk at all about this film outside of the approved posts like for the course of a year or something and i remember i sent it back to them and i was like i can't sign this and they were like don't worry about it so i never actually signed it oh shit i know <laughs> i fulfilled my obligations and i enjoyed i remember they sent me two full bottles of crystal head vodka and what that has to do with it i have no idea but i enjoyed them very much and so you know i can't say anything bad about the way i was treated for that press junket and it almost balances how much I hate that film.
0: (laughs) I mean, that to me, like, and there's been so much discussion and we're going to talk about it like very in depth, but just as a side note, as someone who works in marketing and branding for my day job, that just reeks of, you know, Warner Brothers hiring, I'm sure a very competent PR firm Mm -hmm. who don't actually know it mm-hmm. they don't know the story so they're like it's oh it's fucking horror people get that like crystal head vodka mm-hmm. and it's like no it's not that
1: well i could say that about this entire series of films mm. people who didn't get it Ooh. and people who think you know you just need to deliver a spooky clown and a bunch of kids and that's it how could it go wrong it goes so it wrong. goes so very wrong and folks i'd like to say that my i've cooled my heels over the years that have passed but re-watching these films for this episode it made my fucking blood boil i've often said that the cardinal sin of a bad movie is you never want to be bored Mm -hmm. you know you love it or you hate it if it gets a reaction out of you that's better than being bored not this time yeah not this time when i am so annoyed and irritated that i want to Turn it off and break something. I'd rather be bored.
0: It's, it's a really, in our opinion, I think, just to speak for you, Andrea, a very shoddy film. Yeah. Um, we were texting and chatting a lot this week in, in the run-up to this episode. And um, I said at one point, like, if you told me AI had made these films... I wouldn't be shocked. I have actually
1: been thinking about that (laughs) because you couldn't be more right. It is such a surface level interpretation of what happens and what needs to happen. And that's why it gets everything wrong.
0: And so just to say, we're going to dig into a lot of various elements to do with these films as we are want to do. But just know that like,
1: if you like these films, that's cool. If you like these films, I apologize in advance because I truly don't feel confident in having any journalistic objectivity when it comes to these films. Like, I'm going to tell you right now, I hate them. Like, there's very, I find very little redeeming value, and I don't trust myself to be our usual faculty of horror, enjoy what you enjoy type of way. So I apologize in advance.
0: So just all that to say, we're going to provide some framework. We're going to provide a lot of thoughts and analysis and encourage you to do the same. But just know this might be a little more um, impassioned than...
1: Our normal episode. It, it can't be any other way for yeah. me. I'm sorry.
0: So, Andrea, yeah. before we dive into
1: everything it, I have something for us. Oh, my. God. She's pulling out her phone. She's pulling out her little pencil case of makeup stuff. I hear crinkling. Oh, 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 oh that's fun. That's Wait, fun. Which one
0: do you want? Which one? I've produced two fortune cookies. Yes, wrapped. she has. Uh, left-hand pass. Okay. Are we opening these now? These will provide guidance or a freaky clown thing will pop out at us.
1: Okay. Well, let's see.
0: Wait, get that ASMR in. Hang on.
1: Stop it. I don't believe in that shit. <laughs> I believe in it. I also don't like fortune cookies, so I'm not going to eat this. Okay, I'll eat yours. I wonder if Dante would eat it. Hey! <laughs> What's <laughs> yours? An influential figure will make mention of you in a positive light. Oh, is it you? Maybe.
0: Okay. Uh, mine is, you find beauty in ordinary things. Do not lose this ability.
1: I-, I won't. Can you find beauty in terribly mediocre, bloated things like these movies? Um. Listen, let's find out. All right.
0: When you're a kid, you think the universe revolves around you. They think that you'll always be protected and cared for then one day you realize that's not true because when you're alone as a kid the monsters see you as weaker you don't even know they're getting closer until it's too late thinks this town is cursed, that all the bad things that happen in this town are because of one thing, an evil thing.
1: Bill, if you'll come with me, we will float too. saw something. A
0: clown. Yeah, I saw him too.
1: What happens when another Georgie goes missing? <laughs> or one <what> of <if> us? <laughs> Are you just going to pretend it isn't happening like everyone else in this town? <laughs> if we stick together, <laughs> 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 we'll win. I wanted to start our conversation by presenting my very well-worn paperback.
0: I feel like I need gloves
1: to handle this. You're not handling it. (laughs) (laughs) My darling. My dirty mitts. Look at this. Wow. Even the tape is nope. I am almost scared to read it. I would actually really, this is one book that I would love a beautiful hardcover, like yeah. really nice special edition, because I have read this literally to rags and, um, it's falling apart. Folks. It's falling apart. I, for the longest time, oh, there it is. Look. Oh, I specifically remember buying this book. I was uh, growing up as a kid in suburban Ottawa. Somebody was having a garage sale like up the street. And I went up and they had all these paperbacks just lying on the lawn. And I saw Stephen King's it. And there's a little round sticker here that says 50. I bought it for 50 cents.
0: And look at that author's photo. The
1: author's photo is so I mean, it's falling apart, but it's a black and white kind of profile. Stephen King's not a pretty man so they just kind of i think he's wearing a guitar cuz he's a yeah, musician right yeah he looks right? like he's playing
0: guitar it's like see he's cool what was the uh, print date for this
1: interesting
0: god it's it's so funny seeing this because andrea like will lose her shit if i dog ear a page in a book or highlight or underline anything so
1: copyright stephen king 1986 signet printing 1987 oh wow so this is a book that You know, I read it front to back when I first got it, but after that, it was a book that sat on the shelf of the main floor of my house, and I would read it in snippets. I would just kind of always pick it up and open it somewhere and start reading. So I'm a lot more familiar with some passages than others. I think I've only actually read it front to back maybe twice. Okay. But I've jumped into the middle and read passages endlessly. Wow. endlessly. And this is my favorite cover. You can but like yeah. there, there've been m- many over the years, but it's just it, it's got the it in the typewriter typecast, um the boat and then a sewer grate with some fingers coming out. You can barely see. You can't see. even see the fingers. Yeah. It's so. Uh
0: okay, well we will um take photos of this and put it on our Instagram so you can see this for yourself because this is <laughs> this is quite special. If they ever uh put a wing of, you know, faculty of horror
1: you know, in a museum somewhere. (laughs) This is going in it. It totally should. And... It brought me back to when we were talking about The Exorcist, Mm -hmm. which was a movie that I saw as a kid, and it's a movie that concerns kids. And so when you see something like The Exorcist and you're closer in age to Reagan, you kind of align with Regan. You're like, oh my God, all of this is happening to this child. How terrifying. And then you grow up and you rewatch it and you're like, oh, all this shit is happening to her mom, Chris. How terrifying. And so I think for myself and for a lot of adult, diehard fans of It. It's largely the same thing, but with the extra added benefit of half of the story is from the perspective. Like you really get the best of both worlds, I don't know if you want to say, but you get these perspectives and it just ripened and ripened and ripened in my mind, in my heart, in my psyche. I feel like it deals in basic archetypal narrative storylines that are largely universal. Like when you talk about a coming of age story, when you talk about childhood, when you talk about adulthood, it's a very dark depiction of these things, but it's one that I really relate to. And furthermore, it's a shape-shifting monster that can be a child's greatest fear. Like, come on, that's kind of a slam dunk. So for me, I
0: hadn't read it. Um, as some of you know, if you've listened to the podcast for a long time, I've always consumed Stephen King films, but more only recently, like only into my 20s to actively start reading his books. Um, he's written, in my opinion, some brilliant books. Um, um you know, top of mind really for me are pet cemetery, I think is almost perfect as mm-hmm. a book. Um, and I absolutely love uh, his collection different seasons. all of his short
1: stories are fucking flawless.
0: And and there's some other stuff I've read of his that I also really like, but those are kind of the two that I'm like, no, I do like some of his stuff, but mm-hmm. other stuff doesn't resonate as much with me. We talked a little bit about that in our Misery episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that I think he's a bad writer. It's just some of his stuff I, I just do not connect with and it like
1: it just makes me not feel good yeah, in some way there's so many reasons for that yeah. you know I think it, for me it's largely generational he was my gateway sure. he was you know and like just so influential to the fact that now I'm editor of room morgue, we do faculty of horror we're still talking about him all the time and you know there is a really big reason why but I will say that for this episode so over the summer I finally read it that was your gift to me doing yes. the episode is doing the episode but like Reading this huge book was above and beyond. I and developed I take it um, arm muscles that I didn't
0: know I had just <laughs> holding that fucking thing up. Um, Andrea and I have talked about this. I didn't like it. Um, There are some really beautiful passages. The stuff I really loved was about the history of Mm Derry, especially all the Mike stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, He was probably my favorite character. Um, I hated that he gets sidelined so abruptly at the end. Um, It didn't, in my opinion, it really doesn't need to be that long. Mm -hmm. It can be half of that length. And um, it was kind of the book. It goes on for so long. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I committed to reading it. I committed for the podcast, I committed to one of the dearest, closest people in my life that I was gonna read this, Andrea. Um, and two-thirds of the way through the book, and I was like, God, do I just not like reading? <laughs> do have have I lived my whole life just not knowing I like reading? So, so I get through, I do get through it. I'm not gonna lie, there was some skimming towards the end, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, I, I um, didn't connect with the book. And then it was interesting for me. Uh, I then wa- rewatched the Machete films, mm-hmm. hated them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I have I have a lot more distance from them. Yeah. Um, and then over the last two nights, I rewatched the miniseries from 1990. And I was not planning to do this, but I think in rewatching the Machete films, I was like clearly I need to rewatch these clips on YouTube from the original. And yeah. that's where Andrew and I, we started going back and forth about it. And I was like, I'm just going to watch it. And I watched it and I was like, that's how you tell this story. That's right. You just fucking zip it along. There's some nice story stuff. Yeah, some of the effects are pretty janky, but it was 1990 and it was a TV
1: movie. Like Now, I did not rewatch the miniseries. I've seen it so many times. Sure. I have it committed to memory. But one thing I did do was I checked out a documentary called Pennywise, The Story of It.
0: And I did not watch that. How is it?
1: Amazing. Oh, great. I loved it. I remember when it first came out, I was like, I I think I was so burned Yeah. From these new movies that I was like, I don't want to hear any I I need to protect myself and my fandom at this time. (laughs) And I can't I just can't take any more. However, this is a documentary all about that miniseries. It is exclusively about that miniseries. It's recent. I they really didn't talk about the remakes. yeah, um, they, It was exclusively about the miniseries and it was amazing. Tons of uh, behind-the-scenes stuff. And if you're a fan of the book and the original adaptation, it answers a lot of questions. Tommy Lee Wallace is such a lovely man. Yeah. He has so much affection. Like, And he will go to bat for this film while admitting, this was problematic, this didn't go the way I wanted, and a fucking spider, really? It was on the page. We had to do it. There are warts. In the book, there are warts in this miniseries, and he addresses them all. And I was really, really happy with it. And it actually really clarified my thoughts about what went wrong with the remake. Interesting. Um, it's available. On YouTube and for free, you can watch it with ads. I have YouTube Premium, so I was able to watch it without ads. Brag! I think it was exactly two hours, um, b- but it flies by. It, I I really enjoyed it. And, oh great! Uh, yeah, I recommend uh, to that. check
0: that out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have to talk about these movies. God damn it! We're, we're
1: like a dancing clown, just dancing around it. Um. So listen, what I proposed? Yes. usually. Alex and I will take turns episode for episode. One of us is responsible for the synopsis, and then the other is responsible for a synopsis. If we're doing two movies, we'll do one and the other. I thought for this one, it might be constructive again, because I don't trust myself for any journalistic critical objectivity here. If we both synopsized, like what movie did you see, and what movie did I see?
0: And I think that's what's so interesting about doing these synopses just to, you know, pull the curtain back on faculty of horror. Because, <laughs> you know, I know so many writers are like, oh, I hate when I have to like write something and I have to like describe the plot. And I'm like, no, that's how I know what you think of the story yeah. by the way you describe it. So when Andrea said this, I was like, shit, you should be the editor of a major horror magazine.
1: Well, that's another thing is that when I'm writing up a feature about a movie, yeah. I almost always start with the description because yes. it Same. jogs the brain. It jog- dogs the memory Same. the reason why we'd play the trailer and then we do these synopses is to bring us all back into that headspace.
0: So, I'm going to suggest we maybe start with mine. Okay. Um because I feel mine might be slightly more impartial. Mm-hmm. Um and this is a synopsis of both films. Okay. I just did both because right. I, I could split it in half, but, you know. <clears throat> there is something rotten in Derry, Maine, which the Losers' Club discovers in the summer of 1989. The Losers Club consists of a group of outcast preteens who befriend each other at a proximity and necessity. The entity which terrorizes the club becomes known as It, taking the form of Pennywise the Dancing Clown, and haunts them all in various ways, amplifying the trauma they're all forced to live with. It captures the lone girl in the club, Bev, and the rest of the boys go to save her. The kids manage to save Bev, and they work together to force Pennywise back into the sewers. What they don't know is that It works in 27-year cycles. 27 years later, It reemerges in Derry, and the deaths begin again. The one member of the Losers Club who has remained in the town, Mike, summons the others back. They all return except Stan, whose fear of what's to come causes him to take his own life. The others arrive in town and begin to remember what they'd repressed while Pennywise once again torments them. Eventually, they team up and try an indigenous ceremony to kill it, which doesn't work. Then they bully it to death after one of the losers, Eddie, dies. The remaining members leave Derry and go on to live happy lives. How was that?
1: How do you feel about that? Sounds like a movie I'd like to watch. Well, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's, I, I, I had a feeling <laughs> Andrea's was going to be a bit spicy. All right. Here's my spicy I need to get tape. comfy for
1: this, hang on. Chapter one. In the late 80s, five kids who are sort of friends experience random CGI frights that don't really have anything to do with them specifically. Bill is the only one who gives a fuck because it killed his little brother. After a failed attack on the creature, the group splinters and are individually tormented by Pennywise. Beverly is kidnapped and the boys go to rescue her and Ben saves her with true love's first fucking kiss or something. I can't do this. I'm sorry. That's it. That's a fucking movie. Record breaking box office hit history made. I'm so sorry. Is that checkout?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because this, this whole thing. Reminds me a lot of what is talked about in film circles as like the avatar effect, Mm. the James Cameron movie avatar, Mm -hmm. which is, if not the one of the most, you know, highest grossing films ever made, you know, and the sequel did really well as well. Um, But. It's not like you hear people talk about Avatar. I've seen it and I couldn't tell you what happened. I've never seen it. And I just kind of know it's like CGI dances with wolves. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but there's this, this, you know, kind of question in film circles of like, this is like the highest grossing film ever made, but what is its cultural footprint? Does it have any, what is it? And I feel like the Andy Machete versions of It are kind of like that. Like this is, It Chapter One is the highest grossing horror film ever made. And after its release- I don't hear people talk
1: about it. No. Again, not objective, bitter as fuck. Yep. I have to attribute this box office success to the uh, promise of its strong, strong premise. Again, you've never heard of it. A shape-shifting monster takes the face of a clown and torments children as their greatest fear. That sounds great. Sign me up. There's those audiences. And then there's audiences like me who are just going to have this morbid curiosity of, I know the original book. I know the original film. Let's see an updated version. And I should add that this version does differ significantly from the book in its very premise in that it scoots everything forward. The fact that it reappears every 27 years is you know a major theme and a major thing and so the fact that they push this into the 80s as kids and then into the present day as adults I was stoked when I heard that was the case. I thought that sounded great. Uh, one of the interesting
0: things that I noted um, and obviously this film, as many films are, are in development for years mm-hmm. prior to that. I think It 2017 really benefited from the success of Netflix's Stranger
1: Things. Ooh, yep. That was definitely part of a Stephen King revival, a Kid Power revival. Kid Power,
0: that fucking Finn Wolfheart guy. Yeah, yeah. He's in both. That kind of, you know, it's 80s
1: aesthetic, the kind of glossiness that it had so to right it. Mm-hmm. So hot right now. I'm glad you brought that up. Stranger Things is so indebted to it in so many ways, like just even with Elle kind of being the token girl in the group. And then the you losers. have
0: like, then this film is indebted to Stranger Things. So it's like, we're kind of like really into diminishing returns with this. Oh, yeah. It's a copy of a copy of a copy mm-hmm. and it, it gets kind of weirder. Again, it pulls away from the original source material because. I think, Andrea, to your point, when you talk about, like, it's a scary clown, it's tormenting kids in, like, rural America, this kind of pastoral thing that isn't quite what it seems. There are so many entry points for so many audience members. That's why it can bring everyone in. Uh But it is so bland in the execution that it winds up meaning nothing.
1: Yeah. I experienced zero nostalgia. I grew up in the
0: 80s. Yeah. So one of the things that I felt like this film tried to capture, and it didn't work for me, was the notion of those endless summer days when you're a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, Before you had to get a part-time job or a full-time job, my parents couldn't afford to always send me to camp. So it was just like, you're a good kid, just be cool and don't bug us. Like, and my parents are lovely, but it was like, what do you do with a kid for that long? Mm -hmm. And so you're just kind of like roaming the streets occasionally with friends. And, you know, I would do that, but I would also spend a lot of time alone watching horror movies with like the bit of allowance I had and just go rent horror movies or read books. And, but it just felt like this kind of weird, you know, Blank space of time that I always thought was so interesting, and I'm always kind of fascinated that I look back at it with such fondness, even to this day. That I always anticipate trying to set aside a lot of time to do nothing in the summer. Mm. It's that that's my like recapture reaction. that, yeah, exactly. What were those days like? It was just wandering around, and you'd have a random adventure, or something would happen, and so I just started to think a bit more about summer vacations, and I found an article from floss called why do students get summers off oh so farm kids back in the like 18th 19th century farm kids went to school in winter and summer and they spent the fall and spring planting and harvesting city kids went to school all year round during that period there's like a stat of uh, school days in major cities were something like 260 days a year However, as cities grew and brick and concrete became uh, the dominant sources of infrastructure buildings, um, these cities got hotter due to a phenomenon known as urban heat island effect. Uh, They would just get hot as it was hot in summer, and then it would trap the heat. So that's when the wealthy began to decamp to outside like rural areas, cottages, Mm. the like during that period because it was simply too hot to do anything. And going to school at that point was legislated. Uh, This was also during a period in the late 19th into the 20th century that uh, there was the rise of labor unions. So so this is a time that people were really fighting for leisure time. And so that's around the time that people said, okay, Let's give them the summers off. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, became widely accepted. And then it became, you know, children like legally had to go to school. Mm -hmm. So there is this period of like the cities are uninhabitable. Everyone kind of goes off and does their own thing. But then parents also want their leisure time. So what's a child to do? And then thinking about the setting of the 80s, um, because in these films, the kids section set in the 1980s, that switches so many things in the dynamic and the politics of the time we've talked about these themes in past episodes but this the 80s are the era of like the missing children on milk cartons of satanic panic of stranger danger there was so much anxiety about kids going missing. So I, I was like, God, it's so interesting to take a story set in the 80s and have these kids who are just wandering around encountering an interdimensional monster mm-hmm. that is slowly ripping children out of this town. And, you know, uh, the milk carton stuff obviously was pictures of missing kids on these milk cartons. Um, Stranger Danger was inferring that children shouldn't interact with anyone they don't know. And of course, they take. Panic Panic was the moral panic about Satanism and how it was murdering and corrupting children. The 1980s was a high era for this kind of anxiety as the GOP became consumed by conservative Christian ideology. Many of these ideologies carry on and remain in core tenets of various other anxieties and moral panics that we have going on. They also factor in a lot to elements like QAnon. Basically, Humanity, like we've never really escaped the fear of youth being perverted, damaged, killed, and corrupted. You know, we were just talking about that with like the exorcist that you brought up. There is this real fear of what happens to a society when we fail these children. Mm -hmm. And I think like that's where I'm like, God, there is a richness to this, there is an opportunity here. And then you've got, of course, Pennywise. He becomes that figure, and if you think stranger danger and and satanic panic are these big anonymous ideas in so many ways. Here you have a fucking clown who's murdering children, has scary teeth, and is using balloons to entice these children. And that's what draws these kids in. And then it's the tension between these kind of private traumas that all of these kids in the Losers Club are facing and how this kind of trauma that they're all facing is partially what they're born into and then how they begin to develop their own personalities outside of that trauma when they all get together and become friends.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And it's like, God, there is so much there.
1: There's so much there. I love the idea of, of, of kind of kicking off this discussion with a look at what summertime means for kids because I think one of the reasons I really resonated with this film as a kid was summertime was you got a break from the bullshit of school. And if you were bullied at school, if you were unpopular at school, it was less of that. However, it meant more time at home. And for these kids who were going through such shit at home and like, you know, I I feel like when I talk about this, there's going to be slippage between the book and the movie because sometimes I can't always keep them straight. But these kids are dealing with serious shit at home. Uh, We've got Bill who, you know, his little brother was an early victim and so his parents are grieving and his house feels like a graveyard. So being at home isn't fun for him. Bev is abused, not fun for her. Eddie is living with this, you know, uh, Munchausen by proxy situation. These kids have horrible, horrible home lives. The bully of their daylight hours is still lurking the streets, so they're on the lookout for him, but they they do kind of come together and they find this solidarity in being able to play in the barrens. It's a space where they're not supposed to be, but it is their little refuge. And, you know, when you think of the 1950s summers, you think of, you know, like this kind of post-war optimism that America is safe now. We can let the kids loose and they'll be fine. Just come home when the streetlights come up and stuff. And there is a little bit of stranger danger in the 50s too. I think mm. it's telling that even Georgie is just kind of like, oh, I'm not supposed to talk to strangers, yeah. but I'm a motherfucking clown. Transposing that into the 80s, bumping the timeline forward, you know, it's nostalgia that should resonate with people like you and me coming of age in the 80s. And I even think it's brilliant in that like you still avoid the trappings of cell phones and stuff like that. Like the 80s were perhaps the last generation of kids who roamed around outside in the summertime and in the evenings and rode their bikes and the whole stranger things like that nostalgia. Kind of ends with the 80s. Yeah. Everything changes after that. But there are so many reasons why it doesn't work. Chief among them is the lack of updates to the vernacular. And I'm sure you picked this up in the book, but Beep, Beep, Richie. When they say it in the movie, I was like, from what? I feel like it is one of many really sloppy throwbacks. Like, you love this movie? We better say it. But without context, it's It's such a limp nod. It's meaningless, and it's confusing. Like, if if this film can't stand alone without its source material, it's just a bad film, first of all. Beep, Beep, Richie is a reference to the Roadrunner cartoons, uh, in that the Roadrunner is silent, and it's Beep, Beep to shut him up. Hi-yo, silver away. You port these things open for nostalgia's sake, but they don't make sense in this given context. And furthermore, I was so irritated that the Losers Club themselves weren't updated. So you've got these kids and they represent, you know, in the 50s, or they're intended to represent. I wasn't there in the 50s, but I resonated with this. They're intended to represent these kind of archetypes of the kind of kids who would be bullied in the 50s Mm. there was stan he was jewish there was richie he's mouthy with his thick glasses you've got beverly she's low income sure you know like a a girl and a girl and then that's kind of a funny thing alex is that like when i was doing my research there there are schools of thought where it's like you know She's a girl, therefore she's bullied and called a slut. But I do think that there is like a socioeconomic tenet to that. She becomes the girl within the context of Losers Club in that she's the only girl. Again, I think that's a flaw with the remake. I didn't get the sense that, you know, we saw how hideous Beverly's home life was, but she didn't look low income. She wasn't being teased for having, but she looks great. Yeah. Her outfits are awesome. Yeah. Um, She only has that weird stuck on ponytail. (laughs) What is even up with that haircut? Why? It's so odd. Because I'm like, clearly, that's like, you stick that on with Velcro. It makes no sense, guys. And listen, like, when we talk about economy of filmmaking, this is a huge book. They managed to cram it into four hours, the whole story for a mini series that feels tight hours. and swift. Three hours. No, 90 minutes each. Okay, I just remember renting the VHS tapes, and it was like two and two. Anyway. There is so much wasted time in these reboots, and the fact that they would have this whole haircutting scene, which I feel like is supposed to be, a, again, a really limp gesture toward she's going through something, and so she's having a Britney Spears moment? Is that what that is? I think she was trying to desexualize herself. Well, whipty do, doo It didn't resonate at all. And then, you know, like, stuttering Bill, okay. It's a speech impediment. These things still happen. The overweight kid, fine. Bev's a slut. These things do still kind of make sense in the 80s. They're all cliche. Yeah. And they're not especially fresh. You could argue that they're timeless, and maybe that's cause for consideration, that these things are still being considered 30 years later. But Mike. Oh, Mike. Mike, the only black kid in the town, not even just in the Losers Club, in the 1980s is being bullied for what? being homeschooled? Hey, homeschool. In the 1980s, if you can think of any fucking system of oppression plaguing the world right now, plaguing America in particular, plaguing small time America in particular to this present day, it's fucking racism. And you're just going to cast that to the side and be like, no, 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 he's homeschooled because uh, I don't feel comfortable dropping the N-word.
0: I, th- I thought you were going to say it's truly the plague of being homeschooled. God! damn it no it's it's so like i feel like the it remakes are like the neoliberal like post-racism i don't know what the fuck they're talking about
1: and then and then she's not done okay maybe you're post-racism but you're certainly not post-homophobia are you because we lean in there we lean in like we'll get to this with the next movie but and, and it's only in the next movie that potential queerness of Richie even enters the fray. We'll talk about that when we get to the next film, but holy fucking shit. Going so hard on the homophobia of Adrian Mellon, soft on Richie's queerness, and then just completely colorblind to Mike's blackness is I, there is no universe where that makes sense to me as a cinematic decision. And what I would give to be in the writer's room and be like, you know what, let's just,
0: Yeah, it definitely reeks of they didn't know how to handle it. They didn't know how to update it. And I think it's important to remember like this film, when it really got into production development, was like around 2015. And so we had not, you know, there had already been the Black Lives Matter movement, but it didn't reach the heights that it did in 2020. Mm -hmm. So this was that kind of weird liminal space where I think people were, you know, kind of freaked out and really scared of like how to talk about this stuff. And God forbid any of them thought to bring in um a black writer
1: black lives matter was a time where everyone was being called upon to educate themselves Mm -hmm. and resources were available left right and center it is inexcusable to play the colorblind card at this time but i'm glad you mentioned the early trouble in production because let's talk about the production history of this fucking mess it started all the way back in 2009 when they had david Kajenik attached to direct He collaborated often with Luca Guadagnino. He directed the Terror TV series, which I loved. That shit falls through. Fast forward to 2012. We've got Carrie Fukunaga attached to direct. He did True Detective, a whole bunch of Bond stuff. He backs out. It falls to Muschietti in 2015, who at the time had a single solid horror credit to his name in Mama. Yeah. Which I've never seen. Oh, it's not good. Well, I mean, but like... That's shocking. but (laughs) But I remember at the time it was... It was being spoken highly of. I think he had caught the attention of Guillermo del Toro. Like, he was one of those. It was just, keep an eye on this guy. And, like, I was on board. It could have been worse. It could have been Eli Roth or Rob Zombie or something. But Andy Green. I was like, it, it seemed to be in decent hands. And holy shit. was Like, no good film ever comes from a production that has that much trouble going from that long
0: know if you can say that. I feel like every, every film, every major film has a pretty awful production history given the kind of fingers that
1: are all over it, the money behind it. So I don't know if we can truly ever say that. I'm going to say that if, if Kajanek and Fukunaga were like, mm, no, you're not listening. I, the, the, I'm, okay. I'm projecting, okay. Okay. but allow me this. Yeah, sure.
0: Okay. So is Stephen King is a prolific writer. Um, he's also produced a few nonfiction books, which we've talked about on this show before. And one of them is his book kind of generally and rambling on and on about the horror genre. And that is his book, Dance Macabre. And I found a really interesting quote where he's talking about childhood in the context of horror. And he writes, we think we remember what happened to us when we were kids, but we don't. The reason is simple we were crazy then. Looking back into this well of insanity as adults, we attempt to make sense of things which make no sense and remember motivations which simply don't exist. So I think for, you know, these films and and the book, if you look at, you know, it was published in the 80s, looking back at the 50s, we're always kind of reinterrogating our childhood. You know, i been fortunate enough to go to therapy and you know talk a lot about that and it always kind of loops back into okay, where does that stem from? Mm-hmm. what happened in your childhood you know to, to really simplify it but you know again like talking about that liminal time of summer vacations uh, taking place during this peak anxiety around children in the 1980s and their whereabouts it it just shows that we have this kind of cloudy memory of it. And we want to look back at that period and romanticize it and show that our friendships were meaningful and those connections were meaningful and that we could all get back together and go for dinner and it would be a blast. That's not really the case. And I feel like the book struggles with that and the film like just blatantly ignores that in favor of let's just keep this moving along and Mm -hmm. go from set piece to set piece to set piece.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, Stephen King employs children a lot in his books. And I I feel like I talk about Stephen King does this and does that. I'm sure I haven't even read half. Uh, There are properties that I love very much and I read and reread, but like I'm not a completionist when it comes to Stephen King. However, a lot of kid characters, and I feel like he really captures the sense that when you're a kid and you don't understand how the world works, it's a really scary time. It's a really innocent time, but anything could happen. Like everything is as real as anything else. You can't tell truth from reality. You take everything at face value and you adapt adapt and you adjust and even the most horrible things that happen to you you survive and they don't really come to afflict you until years and years and years later which I feel like you know is a prevailing theme of this book and is a prevailing theme of my fucking life being in my 40s yeah it's um you know I I can think back to wonderful innocent memories but I can also think about terrible things that didn't even scare me at the time because I was too childish to understand that they were scary and that They were awful. And I think when it comes to it, you know, these kids are living in their own personal hells. And insofar as they come together because they're all bullied from school and they've got no one else to play with, that starts it. But it's the admission of, I'm being tormented by this clown and nobody will believe me except you, except these other kids. And, you know, I can think of a couple of friends who. I bonded with kind of on that level. And it's a very special, intense, intense bond. And it's something that I thought the book... I believed it. I bought it. They were friends. And like, you know, there were seven of them, but there were sequences in the book where two of them would experience this. Sometimes it would happen to them uh, in isolation, but like it really did bring them together in a way that was believable to me. And indeed, in the miniseries, there were also sequences of, you know, them just talking, crying together, sharing with each other what was going on at home, what was scaring them, what was this and that. In the reboot, I don't get the sense that they're friends at all. There is zero time spent on their bonding. And indeed, like Richie's antagonistic attitude, I found kind of grating. Yeah. It felt like the kind of situation where like, you know, when your parents are friends and you're forced to hang out with kids that you don't really like.
0: Well, and that's why I had in my synopses, like they are friends out of proximity and necessity. Yeah. And I think that is like, that is often the case with a lot of friendships, um, especially, you know, Back in those days, you know, pre internet, pre social media, when we didn't have ways to connect with people. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, I have been able to make friends with people who live on different continents. Like, I consider Mike Munzer, who hosts Evolution of Horror podcast, a good friend. Mm -hmm. We've never met in real life, but we sure chat a whole bunch. And like, that was not something for us when we were kids. We didn't have that access. And sometimes you meet people who are like, friend for life, friend for life. Absolutely. But then there's a lot of them that fall by the wayside. Mm -hmm. And I think there is so much of this story that has to do with the town of Derry. And as I mentioned already, that was the part of it that I loved every time it was like Mike looking back, exploring the history of dairy, kind of piecing it all
1: together. I was like, I love this book. Yeah, your synopsis was so apt, and this town is rotten to the core. And indeed, at the end of the book, when all is resolved, it collapses. It
0: collapses. Like, the biggest storm ever sweeps through that area of Maine and washes it all the fuck out. I mean, we have talked about the notion of the American small town because it is such a prevalent idea. It's like... Like, you know, it comes back in, you know, 27 year cycles. Well, the American political system operates in two year cycles, you know, four years for the president and then intervening four years for the other houses of government. Every time you see those people back on the campaign trail, because if you're a sicko like me who likes to have their coffee and either read about politics or watch CNN, I watch a lot of this and they are all desperately talking about the American small town. And I've been to a few American small towns and they're a lot like Ontario small towns. You know, there is a lot of smallness to them. They can have some wonderful character to them, but oftentimes they can feel a bit oppressive. Mm -hmm. And I say this as someone who grew up in Toronto and Montreal, like I've grown up in relatively major cities, so to speak. So that is my own biases, but definitely seems like it's not something that feels familiar to me to be in those small towns. And I found a really interesting article called The American Small Town in the Age of the U.S. Empire by Ryan Pohl. We'll, of course, link this in the show notes. And in part of the article, Paul references The Country and the City by Raymond Williams. And Williams talks about the disappearing rural as a repeating narrative in Western discourse, and that every generation sees the rural as a golden age, which has been killed by recent events. And then Paul goes on to write about the idea of American modernity has been defined by the death of small towns, that as industrialization, as economies, as progress, whatever whatever you want to label it with, As that moves forward, these small towns again become disused, they fall into disrepair, and they become kind of haunted and empty. But you can also see these narratives and really mainstream things like Thornton Wilder's play Our Town from 1938, Uh, Shirley Jackson's short story The Lottery from 1948, Mm. Uh, The Last Picture Show, the movie from 1971, even Back to the Future 1985 has something very similar in there. And I think it And its iterations kind of fits in with this, of this small town that is just not quite right. And it's like, we haven't gotten back to it and we haven't figured it out. And for me, having read the book and then watching these films, I was like, I have no sense of dairy as a place. Yeah. I have no sense of where I am in it. I have no sense of the character or anything about it. And it just feels like, you know, we're missing these things. And, you know, if we think about the movement from, you know, as you were already talking, Andrea, originally it was set in 1950, then goes to 1980. Now we've got 1980s to the 2000s and the cycle of it taking 27 years while generations are 20 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. So it's just a generation removed. And what do we pass the buck to in that next generation and I think there is something very powerful in the losers club when they come back as adults saying actually this ends here mm. I can't do this again when I'm 70 I like it has to stop somewhere and I think there is something really profound in that of like this
1: trauma this death this destruction it ends with us there could be There should be. Yeah. Watch the miniseries because it's not in this film. Yeah. Uh, Another thing that I found absent in this film that resonated strongly. uh, Again, I feel like there was a limp gesture to it in this film is that adults fucking suck. There is not one trustworthy adult in these kids midst uh with the exception of maybe Barbara Starrett, the librarian that Ben kind of takes yeah. a shining to uh, one other adult who maybe in the book is is honest is uh, is Mr Keene the drugstore oh. operator who, who levels with Eddie and is like you know your your puffer is a gazebo yes however in this movie he's relegated to this horrible perv which for comedy effect I guess and like Beverly is to able to leverage that she is. yeah it was icky and it was dumb and I was like I felt like that was such a powerful theme in the miniseries in the book that adults are not to be trusted that these kids have no recourse not only do they have no one to come to for help that hey there's a clown picking us off one by one kids are getting murdered and adults are scared but adults also aren't listening and aren't helping and
0: they're also under the sway of it
1: however like you always wonder because you know remember when we were talking about um one of the most chilling scenes of halloween is when laurie is going yes. door to door and yes. nobody's oh. answering you know there's a so scene good. in the book yeah. and the miniseries and the new movie where henry bowers has a knife to ben's gut and a car goes by and they look away and so you're like is that its influence or is that just small town america yeah i don't know and either way that's chilling yeah
0: something happens to you when you leave this town the farther away the hazier it all gets
1: but me i never left i remember all of it So I think we're ready to move on to chapter two.
0: Yeah, the kids, they faced everything down and now they're back and faced with the decision that it ends with them.
1: Yes, they've made a pact. Uh, interestingly, this blood pact, this was a little nugget that I gleaned from that uh, documentary. The blood pact was made into a spit pact in the miniseries because in the 80s, we we're the oh, blood on the AIDS like and AIDS it's AIDS not okay. Yeah. But uh, are you ready for my synopsis? Hit me. Okay. This one opens up in 2016 with a homophobic hate crime that's way more brutal and graphic than anything that's happened in this movie franchise thus far. Losers reunite, but they're all selfish pricks now, and they don't want to do anything about the murders until Beverly shares that she's had a vision that they'll all die anyway, which, you know, lights a fire under them. They wander around the town to collect trauma souvenirs, and they come together to do an ancient native ritual, which doesn't work because they were too scared. No longer scared, they yell at Pennywise to fuck off, and he does. In the worst finale, in the history of shit finales, the group reads heartwarming letters from Stanley before he slid his wrists, saying something along the lines of, gee golly, we were a funny bunch, weren't we? Adios, losers. The end. So when I saw
0: It Chapter 2, obviously, I knew Andrea had gone on this whole influencer trip. You were very... Um, you talked a lot about the experience, but not much about the film, other than you really didn 't like it mm-hmm. and I was like oh i didn 't really enjoy the first one i 'm not going to rush out to see the second one and I remember I was on a business trip, mm-hmm. and I was in a hotel room in Montreal, and I think it was um, it was probably December January, and it was like cold it was snowy it 's montreal um And it was like, do I try to go out and meet up with some people or do I just stay in my very nice hotel room and rent something on pay-per-view that my work will pay for? I opted for that. And I was like, okay, you know what? I will watch it chapter two. And almost immediately, I was tuning out of it. I actually got out my work computer and was doing work on the (laughs) hotel bed while kind of half watching it. And I remember getting to the end of the like clown, clown. Clown, clown. Well McClellan scared beating heart. And I remember just like looking up from my laptop and being like, I made the right decision not to pay attention to this. <laughs> Obviously, for this episode, I actually like fully put my phone in another room so I was not tempted and kind of like sat on my hands and was like. Alex in A Clockwork Orange, forcing myself to pay attention to this.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was writhing in agony for most of it. I was annoyed at so much wasted time, so much superfluous material that I, I didn't feel added anything to anything other than literally the runtime. But I was really interested to see how it ends. But mm-hmm. for the most part, I was wishing it would end.
0: Yeah. Um, I was kind of initially captured as a film fan and a fan of... Canadian film? Mm-hmm. We, we, we make films here. Yes, we do. They're pretty good, some of them. Um, but I think what often goes underappreciated in a lot of North American cinema is the Quebecois cinema.
1: Yes.
0: And, you know, the Quebecois, they really have their own film industry, their own star system. Uh, the Quebecois actually watch a lot of the content they make, unlike a lot of the larger Canadian content, which is kind of dopey sitcoms on like CBC or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, gosh, the guy playing Adrian Mellon, who is
1: that? Who is Mm. so
0: familiar, so familiar? And actually wound up like breaking down and Googling it and celebrated Québécois filmmaker Xavier Dolan. It's kind of a cameo. Yeah, I think for (laughs) if you're a Canadian film fan or a Québécois film fan, it is absolutely quite the cameo. And then I read that Xavier Dolan, who's made some very good films, some not so good films, and he's kind of in a weird space now as a Canadian auteur, um, he was apparently a very big fan of It Chapter One and was talking to Andy Machete and was just like, a&E, let me do something in the new one. And they were like, cool, you want to play the gay guy who dies? I mean, that and tracks. And Xavier Dolan is famously out yes. as, as a queer filmmaker, I should say.
1: That really tracks because there's a lot of very silly playfulness in chapter two. There's cameos. Obviously, there's a Stephen King cameo. Oh, there's a lot of throwbacks to... Bill Denbro can't end his stories. He's just really bad at endings, 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 endings. That comes up a lot, a lot, a lot. Uh, On the rewatch, I actually caught a cameo from Andy Muschietti himself, uh, which I don't think I would have caught the first time only because I met him. So when- Adult Eddie goes to the pharmacy and he has that really stupid experience in the basement. And there's that whole angel of the morning thing with the leper. Fuck, it sucks. He's shopping in the store. Yeah. And he's just in a t-shirt. And I was like, oh, that's you. That's you. You son of a bitch. There is so many... Playful, silly, and levity has its space in horror. Guys, comedy has its space in horror. This was so imbalanced, you know. I think Bill Hader is an amazing actor. There's a lot of incredible actors in this film, and they are acting their fucking asses off. And it's so cringy and devastated given the material that they have to work with.
0: And I should say, in my kind of research and everything, I uh, fell down a YouTube and was watching a behind the scenes of it chapter two and a lot of it was spent with bill sarsgaard mm. who is someone we haven't mentioned yet and he of course plays pennywise he's part of the sarsgaard swedish film dynasty, dynasty. Um, fuck them all uh, yes yes in an upcoming uh sympathy for the sequel for rumororg tv i literally talk about how hot stalin sarsgaard is yeah Yeah, would do. Yeah, would do. Um, But how do you feel about Bill Sarasgaard as Pennywise? I think he is doing some interesting stuff. In a very confined space, my problem with Pennywise in this iteration is that he is so overtly evil and scary from the outset, mm-hmm. and it's like when you start at eleven, you don't have that much further to go. So I feel like it, the performance, while there's a lot of energy behind it and he's kind of you know he manages some kind of funny chuckle moments, it's not the same as again, I, I always hate to compare, but when you got Tim Curry. As Pennywise is like, as a character it feels much straighter. And then when it turns, it gets like when Pennywise gets actually fucked up in evil, it's like, whoa, 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 we've crossed a line here. Yes. And, and so I feel like we're always like, we're, we're way past the kind of crossing the line is in the background from yeah. the outset of how evil Pennywise is. So I don't put that on Sarsgaard himself. I put that on the film, but how, how do you feel about it? So I'm kind of
1: in the middle because like you, I was finding Pennywise really not menacing. And I was trying to figure out why. I think a lot of the CGI is questionable. I think the CGI that they employ, Pennywise is a manifestation of a cosmic being. He's a skin. And so I think a lot of the CGI almost made it look like there was a creature shifting underneath the skin. So I kind of sort of get why they did that. However, and this is something that really crystallized for me when I watched that Pennywise documentary about the miniseries Tim Curry employs a really classic theatrical physicality to Pennywise. There's yeah. a lot of physical comedy when he's clowning, he's clowning. The he Prince Albert in a can thing. And then he does that like head back and laugh. Yeah perfect he prances he has these expressions and then like you say when it turns the lights go off behind his eyes and something sinks in your gut so i don't know if it's that bill sarsgaard did not have the chops to do that or that he was not given the leeway to do that
0: i'm gonna argue he wasn't given the leeway to do that based on his performance in barbarian Okay, okay. Because that opening sequence in Barbarian, for those who haven't seen it, you're not quite sure what his character's motivations are, if he's a good guy or a bad guy, and he's oscillating between the two, I think, in a really smart way. Mm -hmm. So I think he has the capabilities to do it as an actor. I think this film does not set him up to do that.
1: No, instead, for the comic levity, this film employs instead all these self-referential gags. There's the Stephen King inability to finish a story that I mentioned. There were the endless throwbacks to classic. classic horror the thing in Stan's severed head are you fucking kidding me there's a here's Johnny there's a come to daddy it's not fun it's tiresome yeah we get it we're horror fans and it was so brutal for me to be sitting in this beautiful auditorium in this lavish thing and to have people be like yay I get that reference yay meanwhile I'm writhing in my seat being like no man this is such a cheap nod why do you love it what is wrong with me
0: it's a horrible feeling when you are watching something it's a concert it's a play it's a movie whatever it is and you're like I don't like this and everyone else around you is like so fucking into it it is the most like
1: distancing thing i've ever felt and look i've been in a situation where you get swept up in the frenzy i remember when i first saw the halloween Uh, remake there at midnight madness with jamie lee curtis and 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 john carpenter present and like okay okay i did not have any of that for this and certainly not with the rewatch gene belcher the big winner what do you have to say i want to say you people have taken this too far.
0: Oh, this again. Give me give me the megaphone. No, me- I earned this. Yes, gaga ball is fun. It's a good game. But I bet some people here are only playing because they felt pressured to. Pressured by their friends. Pressured by you, Mr. Frond. Don't be ridiculous. Everybody wants to be here more than at any school activity we've ever had. Why do you hate gaga ball, Gene? I don't! I just don't like it when anything ball is all anyone talks about. I think when people say everyone loves something, they're being a little loose with the word everyone. Everyone loves food and air and Matt Damon, but that's about it, probably. It's not a good feeling when someone says everyone, but they don't mean you. So, uh, you know, we just talked a bit about Derry as a town, and one of the things I thought was so interesting about It Chapter Two was the couple nods, particularly in the Adrian Mellon sequence, like there's the fair going on, the fair kind of happens uh, later on in the film, it comes back, Um, and there's, you know, the I heart Derry, everyone's kind of coming home, the homecoming aspect of this. I always feel like when people are going back to where they're from, you know, I'm born and raised in Toronto, so I don't often have that being a Torontonian, Um, For friends of mine who have that, there's always so much weight to it. There is a heaviness to it. And yet so many of these towns, particularly small towns, will have festivals, where they will have things that instill some sense of civic pride. And I found uh, an essay that, again, we'll link in the show notes, called Urban Civic Pride and New Localism. And this essay is all about the failings as we progress in our modernity. We leave these small towns to essentially rot and decay and the infrastructure begins to fade and then fails and then this installation of civic pride is used to bolster the feelings of residents um, to make them feel good about where they're from that this is like look at all these cool things we have in the community while not actually solving any of the intrinsic problems that they face whether it is potholes whether it is sewer systems you know clowns in said sewer systems systems all of that and oftentimes this this piece concludes that civic pride is used more as a distraction to make us feel emotionally attached to a place rather than actually question and challenge it and make it better i certainly feel that a lot with toronto you know our basketball team the raptors they won in 2019 and that was like the oh my god like toronto's the coolest city in the world for a second yeah. but we have as many problems as every other major city. And so I thought that was a really interesting notion of how we cloak these real issues with this facade of
1: pride and excitement about where we're from and like creating ownership around it. Yeah. No, I love that you picked up on that both in the context of it and I can also relate it to my personal experience in that I grew up in Ottawa, which is Canada's capital, Mm -hmm. and Canada Day is a big fucking deal. And I never feel especially patriotic about canada other like maybe there'll be a sports occasion like you mentioned the raptors i can also think of uh the canadian hockey team when things have gone well of course now it's a giant national shame but anyway canada day is a big deal and they put so much money into this firework show. And as I got older and the more I thought of it, it's just like all these Canadians just looking up at the sky and being like, ooh, ah, uh, I live in a great place. And that's all it takes to convince us that we live in the greatest fucking place in the world. And so, you know, within the book, the I heart dairy motif, the hat that was discarded by Adrian Mellon, I heart dairy would appear on Pennywise. He played with that because it is so fundamentally rotten. And like you said, here's this fair, here's this one opportunity to, okay, I guess we can have civic pride just to kind of enjoy this shitty town for once. And look what happens. The most horrific hate crime I've probably ever seen in film.
0: Yeah, and it is so brutal and it's it's interesting because it happens in the book, but I feel like they spend a decent amount of time on it in the film, but I never get to quite make the connection with it. You know, it doesn't kind of all loop back, and I wish it did a bit more. You know, when we talk about the lack of, in these films, in the machete films, of uh, not having the adults be as culpable, whereas I feel it much more in the novel and in the 1990 miniseries, it's like, no, there's something wrong with the adults, whether it's Pennywise, some of his influence or just adults, and humans are kind of fucked. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we lose that thread, and we're asked to kind of hold these ideas in our head, and I feel feel like it doesn't quite gel because everyone ends up walking away from this happy and fine. And again, we don't deal with racism. We don't deal with homophobia. Certainly with the homophobia, we're exposed to it. But as you and I were talking about, so what? Yeah. What are you going to
1: do about it? And like I intimated in my synopsis of the film, I feel like there's a lot of taunting. Pennywise does a lot of taunting of these kids. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo, I'm going to get you. There's no threat. There's very little actual violence the biggest scene of violence and it's brutal it is no joke i remember seeing it in the theater and being like oh shit is chapter two going to be way more violent than chapter one no with the exception of this one scene no it is not and i think that matters That matters to me in terms of the tone of the film, where the blood goes, where the violence goes, where it all happens. And it it felt like a throwaway, like you said, because it didn't tie back together. And it's the biggest question when you're looking at a film and a filmmaker
0: is the question, especially in horror, is who can be brutalized and why? Mm -hmm. And I think it's so interesting when you counter that with the scenes of like when Bev and Ben and then Bill, they're all kind of in their own personal hells towards the end. And Bev is being like subsumed by blood. And she gets out of it when she realizes Ben wrote the poem for her. And I mean, we haven't truly touched on like the fact that ben kissed her and like awakens her from her like deadlight slumber she
1: loves first kiss it was in my synopsis, it was in your synopsis right? but i still
0: went i i i watch it and i completely
1: forgotten that part of the film and Women i just need a reason to exist i keep telling you this she just like go pass out in the street see who kisses me i want to talk a lot more about bev i have a lot to say but first but first,
0: it almost feels cliche to talk about this in horror films, but I I, I have not come across a film or a story in horror that has utilized this idea more than this story, which is Robin Wood's Return of the Repressed. Uh, we've talked about it once Classic. again before on the show. But um, Robin Wood was a film critic. Uh, These writings came out in the 70s, and he was talking about all kinds of things, and he's such a brilliant writer and thinker, Um, so definitely encourage you to check out all of his stuff. But when we talk about Return of the Repressed, Wood introduces this idea as part of the Freudian conceit. Many of you know how we all feel about Freud, but stick with me for a sec. So Wood kicks off with the Freudian conceit that civilization was founded on monogamy and family. Hence, there is a surplus of sexual energy, and that sexual energy needs to be repressed, but finds a way to return, and in its returning form is often disgusting and distorted. And you think about most horror stories, it is about something returning and coming back more violent, more disgusting than it is originally. Um, And Wood writes, the implication of these films, of the whole movement of popular cinema, is that the norms by which we have lived must be destroyed and a radically new form of organization be constructed. So I would argue that Stephen King's book, It, does that because of the ending. Um, Because as we've already alluded to, at the end of the novel, Derry's basically wiped out by a storm Mm -hmm. and it is all deconstructed. The the now adults move away and they all begin to forget. However, I don't have that sense in these films. Mm -hmm. There's a status quo that, well, we've done it. Now we leave forever. That Mm -hmm. once evil clown, we bullied him and
1: we are now great. And God, I just had a horrible thought. What? Do you think that actually opens the door to more. No, they would have done it by now. Another 27 years. Another generation of losers. I mean, that's bold to think humanity will still have a livable Earth in 27 years. I don't even want to put that out into the universe. Consider that demanifested. Consider that repressed.
0: Yeah. But I think, you know, it as a story is about these kids going through some, you know, relatively common if, you know, broad childhood traumas that they then are forced to return to as adults and they have to actually deal with it. You know, that's what we do in therapy. Um, And these kids have now the literal clown of their childhoods to face down once again.
1: Absolutely. I think that's when I talk about how this book, how this story stayed with me well into my adulthood. It's like, I remember being a kid and swearing that I'd never be like my parents.
0: Yeah. And and like, honestly, like this stuff with Bev in the book and in the miniseries is so heartbreaking because she realizes that she gets together with someone exactly like her she father. She marries
1: her dad and Eddie marries, marries his, his mom. mom. I don't think that that's really elucidated strongly enough. Like uh, for what I consider to be the prevailing theme of this book, I... I, I feel like it was just kind of touched upon and moved on. I, I feel like this theme of being bound to our histories, the inability to leave the past behind, it's the closest thing we can understand to the idea of fate or destiny. And that is what is so compelling to me. And then, you know, you've got this movie that just like kind of does away with all that and, and wipes it clean. Now, Alex, to wrapping up, or perhaps like j- just to kind of take a bird's eye view, we've had a lot of interesting conversations throughout your journey of reading this, book. like I wanted to save it for the episode, but I also wanted to know, I knew you weren't having the best time. And so I was like, that's okay. That's okay. But I did ask you a couple of weeks ago, who you think got done The dirtiest. Which of the losers got the shortest shrift in this remake? You know, like from a person who isn't terribly connected to the book, who isn't terribly connected to the miniseries. I'm tremendously connected to the miniseries. I was as a child because I was a misfit. I had an unhappy home that I felt like I couldn't talk about to anyone. I didn't trust adults. I didn't trust men. I perceived the world with a lot of hostility. And that was kind of a theme that has grown with me. That was implanted, perhaps, with this perspective of this book. But, you know, these characters have their journeys. And having read the book, you had an answer. Mm-hmm. And your answer was? Mike. And initially, I was like, oh, not Bev? And now, we had a brief exchange about that. And I think... I think your points
0: about Bev, which you'll elaborate on, but um, I think they're very well taken. I think I also feel like Mike gets done the dirtiest in the book as well because he gets sidelined at the end.
1: He does. And like, listen, Stephen King, I am not a Stephen King apologist. No, I am not the no. kind of fan who's going to be like, oh, well, he he means well. He's like, he's a fucking boomer. Yeah. He's a fucking huge Lovecraft fan. He acknowledges that Lovecraft is a racist, and yet the magical Negro trope abounds in Stephen King's stories. White saviorism abounds in Stephen King's stories. It abounds in this story, in The Ritual of Chud. Um, the more I thought about it, the more I reflected on it, I do think that Mike was done the dirtiest. However, it was kind of a catalyst that made me really unpack my feelings toward Beverly, mm. and Beverly as a character. And it was something that was also kind of triggered by a moment in the Pennywise The Story of It documentary that I saw, where the actress Emily Perkins, who plays Young yes. Bev in the original miniseries, she said that for years, fans would come up to her and say they always wanted to be Beverly. And I remember hearing that and thinking, Is that ever fucked up, but is that ever relatable? And that I get it. I get it on the level that I had few things in common with Beverly, but what I didn't have was a loser's club. Mm. I would see boys who were nerds, who were bullied, kind of band together, and they would engage in things that interested me, like video games in horror. They would band together. They would find this community at the arcade or whatever, but there was no entry point for me. There was no space for girls in those groups. There was no Losers Club for me until I discovered the internet and I started chatting with like-minded people there. And thankfully, my household was an early adopter of the internet, so I benefited from that quite young. But, you know, in the book, Beverly is aspirational on a few levels that aren't present in these remakes that I want to mention. You know, like, you heard how facetious I was about her getting captured and then rescued and then saved by a kiss because in the book she emerges as the best shot with the slingshot and she's kind of the hero of part one. She's never one of the boys in this remake. They're always leering at her. They're always like there are full on sequences where she's lying there in her bathing suit and they're just like (laughs) (laughs) They're in the deadlights. I didn't get that from the the book. I didn't get that from the original miniseries and I didn't feel that in my heart when i felt that kinship with beverly that she could be one of the guys that she could be one of the ghostbusters that she wasn't an outsider but in these movies she is an outsider within this group and it's she's an object for them it's so sad and so I do think that Beverly was done dirty, but like on a deeply personal level sure. to me, but I do think that Mike was done the dirtiest.
0: Yeah, I think there are great arguments for both. Um, another thing I kind of, I also was reflecting on that conversation. I mean, truly, if if we could, we'd just share our G-chat transcripts. Never, never, <laughs> never. Are you kidding? We have them set to self-destruct if one of us does. That's right. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking about that question and then I was like, it's not a character, but I would love to hear your thoughts about the ending. Sure. Because I remember the ending. I remember they try something that doesn't work and then they bully Pennywise to death. <laughs> I had forgotten about all of the like stupid like wink, wink, nudge, nudge placements of turtles. Oh, oh yeah.
1: And I was like. <laughs> the Lego turtle yeah, that smashes. I was yeah, like. And there's turtle talk. Okay. Um,
0: so you acknowledge that there's a much bigger ending in the book. Well, that's just it,
1: is I felt like... I'm not going to do it. All the digs about Bill Denbro not being able to finish his stories and the snide, backhanded remarks about the turtle, like, they didn't feel like loving homage to the book. They felt mocking. Yeah. And insofar as, as a lover of this book, there are two things about this book that are utterly indefensible. And one of them is the ending. Look, this is a huge cosmic story. This is a huge monster. I... Truly can't imagine trying to wrap up this story in a satisfactory way. I settle for what we get in the book. I'm okay with what we got in the miniseries. What we got in the remakes are indefensible.
0: And I do think this is an overall problem with so many films, with so many narratives, so many book stories, everything. You set up this like unbeatable evil, but you need to beat it in the end you do that's how the narrative works so you need to at least suppress them for a certain amount of time freddy krueger jason michael all of them yeah but it is so like how do you set up that final battle how do you pay it off mm-hmm. and this just felt like the most like womp womp i love that you just brought up freddy krueger
1: because he it's often, the same ending it's the same ending where i don't believe in you mm-hmm. you have no power over me at least he had the good sense to disappear into 80 sparkles yeah It disarmed them in a way that, like, if you're not familiar with the book, guys, it's a whole metaphysical, it's a whole cosmic battle that happens on a psychic plane where there is a turtle, which is kind of a a (laughs) cosmic creature that is benevolent, but also very apathetic. And Bill is kind of begging, like, help me. And this turtle's like, I don't give a shit. This thing is feeding on your world. I don't care. I barfed out your universe because I had a tummy ache, whatever. And then, of course, it, as a creature, is manifest. Invested in a spider as opposed to a turtle. Like these are kind of like archetypal animals. This is a predator. This is an animal that we trust. This is this is the human, the feeble human mind trying to make sense of these giant cosmic creatures. K. Okay. Fine. I cannot believe how embarrassing it is that this cosmic evil is beaten down by being called a clown repeatedly.
0: The other thing that occurred to me while watching it, chapter two, was. So we've talked about the kind of colorblindness of Mike's character. Yeah. I think the inclusion of the indigenous ceremony and the falsifying of the outcome and things like that is like... Egregious.
1: It's indefensible. (sighs) Mike stole... This artifact from indigenous population, he defaced it. He lied to his friends about how it works. Uh, There's kind of this white savior trope that comes in about, well, they did it wrong because they didn't believe hard enough. We can do it right. Right, guys? Don't like it.
0: Yeah. It was something that felt like, oh, you really thought you were trying to do something and you thought you did it, but I hate everything about this. I hate it. And so one of the things I wanted to throw at you, and I know we've got a few more things we want to touch on, but so the biggest defense I read online of all the changes, all of this, like the stuff that they were doing, all the misdirections uh-huh. was that for people like Andrea Subisati, who love the book, who know the book, you don't want to just see the book on screen. You need to be surprised. You need to have some twists and turns put in there.
1: And I was like, ah, sure, but also not like this. I can say with confidence that nobody making this movie considered what Andrea Subisati wants. In fact, <laughs> in fact, and like, I, I would not say this about any other movie that Did you
0: that get I, in a fist fight with Andy Machete after? I would
1: never say this about another movie that I watched and hated, but I feel like I could make a better movie. Oh, I bet you could. I think I could. I absolutely believe that. I was prepared to be disappointed in a newfangled ending. I was not prepared to wish for the book's ending
0: and i think that's it the story is like dairy on its surface it is this small town that makes total sense that's kind of creepy the deeper you get into the sewers of it the the deeper you get into the narrative and all the twists and turns and fucking you know 1200 pages of it the weirder it is Mm -hmm. and you need to find a way to balance that surface with the weirdness yeah because if you just do the surface then you've got ai the movie Yeah. That doesn't really make sense, that doesn't actually mean anything that you know if someone's coming into it or maybe this is a gateway into horror for them, they might go, "Oh, that was scary, oh, that was exciting, but it betrays all of the interesting, if deeply imperfect aspects
1: of the story, yeah, yeah, it's weak. The movie employs a whole lot of really like weird word salad that I think is meant to be deep and and, and it just doesn't resonate. I, I think I have an example. Here's somewhere where it's like a monologue from Mike in chapter two. At one point, he's like, we are what we wish we could forget. It's like, that sounds nice, but yo, they did
0: forget. That sounds they like, literally
1: s- forgot. That literally
0: sounds like something Jack Donaghy would say on Thirty it's Rock.
1: It's empty. It's empty, and the idea that like I, I feel spoken down to yeah. by this film, and that I'm supposed to take that as some kind of depth that like the ending Stanley letter, like <sighs> it, it just it makes light of suicide in such a disgusting way, and I feel patronized by it.
0: Yeah, it, it was just it, there's so much that I was like, you don't need to do this, no, and it's. Two hours and 50 minutes.
1: I was excited by the prospect of moving this story up 30 years. I was excited by the prospect of of, of a fresh young whippersnapper taking a fresh... I swear to God I was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I need you to believe me because I'm so cranky about remakes for the most part. I really gave this one the benefit of the doubt and it let me down in so many ways. But before we wrap up, I think we need to talk about the big, sexy, elephant in the room I know it's not sexy it's pedophiliac and deeply inappropriate and indefensible actually and if you haven't already guessed I am referring to this Kitty sex scene i mean i'm talking about the book so i am talking about the canon the source material (laughs) after they believe that they have defeated pennywise they get lost in the sewers and they can't find their way out which in retrospect we're all supposed to understand as an indication that they didn't actually beat it the curse of dairy is still upon them they can't get out they can't escape this city and so stephen king addled by alcohol and cocaine and God knows what else, <laughs> writes this whole sequence about how these kids need to push into adulthood. They need to leave their innocence behind in the sewer. And the way to go about that narratively is to have all these kids take their turns banging Beth.
0: And Andrew and I were talking about this and off mic, and we're it's often referred to as the orgy in the book. It is not an orgy they are running a train on Bev. Yes. And that may seem like semantics, but I think it's actually quite
1: different. I think I learned that term from Vanderpump Rules. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think Katie was saying that she was going to run train through that and then she had to elucidate that. So thanks for that, Katie Mahoney. I mean, what can't Vanderpump Rules do? the even the most die hard fans of this book and i am among them and i know others yes of it's course indefensible there is not like the idea that it's 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 leaving innocence behind is I get that that's what he was going for, but the ick factor surpasses that and covers it with a layer of what the fuck. That's really hard to get past. Any reread of this book is going to skip over those pages. It doesn't belong in either adaptation, and thankfully, it doesn't appear in either one. And
0: I have to say, I was deep into, when I was reading it this summer, I was deep into my skimming phase of Uh it, uh and I was literally like, did I miss that? And then I literally came upon it and was like, oh, no. Oh, gosh. Oh, golly gee. I had pearls on, as I normally do when I read, and I clutched them.
1: Even as a kid, (sighs) even fully immersed in what is going to happen next of this story, when I realized where it was going, I just remember this feeling coming over me that, like, this isn't right. Yeah. This doesn't make sense. So I've been thinking about this, and I feel like
0: King has a kind of childlike view of sexuality in that he can only understand it from his perspective.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that kind of works in something like Pet Cemetery. When you read the novel, Lewis is very preoccupied with like kind of sex. And, you know, when they have to cut Church's balls off, he sees that as a kind of denigration of his own masculinity. He feels so
1: castrated by proxy.
0: Exactly. And like, you're like, oh, that's kind of an interesting thing. And it, they don't go into it in the films, but you feel that kind of anxiety that, that it makes sense in Pet Cemetery for Lewis as a character. Here, it just felt like he didn't know how to connect them with Beverly. Yeah. And so it was like, how do you connect with a woman? You fuck her. Yeah. and, It is so, that narrative is not new, it is not disappeared, it's not anything else. It's so present, but it is so sad that it is part of this story that so many people love. And rather than have them like work together or do something else, it's like they have to fuck the girl to feel that connection with her to bring her in to do whatever it is that he thinks he's
1: doing with this rather than treat her like a goddamn human being. Well, here's the thing. I think he did think he was treating her like a goddamn human being in that that entire sequence is in her point of view. Mm -hmm. Sure. It's icky. But I I do think that that was his attempt. And like I've really been reflecting on it. And like I'm never going to get on mic and put my words on the internet defending this. I'm not defending this scene, guys. I am not. Are you defending this scene? I'm not going to defend this scene. But I will say that in retrospect, there is an aspect of it that does kind of resonate with me in a weird way. And I do think that it comes from not being Bev when I needed to be Bev. And being Bev later in life, hmm. being the token girl in male spaces. Sure. And I know this is something you know something about. Yeah. Anytime that I am the only girl in a male-dominated space, there's sexes in the air. Yeah. There's this weird specter of possibility where it's like I want to get it out on the forefront that I'm not single. Sometimes that doesn't matter. But that changes the something in the air, doesn't it? Yeah. and. I think it comes from two places. I think I was brought up to fear men and to question their intentions. But also I know that statistically in a group of a certain size, I know that at least one of these guys would do something inappropriate if given the chance. Hmm. So nearly every interaction I have with a male has that looming over it. You're going to be sexualized on the basis of heteronormative potential. If that makes sense. Yeah. And it's sad that I would internalize this and be able to understand this so easily, but a lot of patriarchal conditioning is fucking sad, isn't it? and scenes like this don't help that. No. Because it's like, that's how we treat the girl. That's
0: right. Because ultimately, whether it's the sex scene in the novel It or the way the boys are leering at Bev in It Chapter One, it's like she is there for our viewing. It is, you know, the male gaze in cinema that, you know, it is so heteronormative. And even when you get kind of this Richie-esque anxiety about Eddie's death, it's like, okay, that's also there. But I feel like we've just spent the whole time wondering
1: who Bev is going to pick. To go back to the question of who got done dirty, this book did Bev dirty. Yeah. The movies did Mike dirty. Yeah. And I think that's where I land on that.
0: I think that's fair. As we wrap up, I wanted to talk to you a bit about the ending Um, Obviously, we were talking about the ending, but the very ending, I actually found it, even though I had a lot of problems with the book, I got a little emotional at the end. Of the book? Yeah. I got got a little misty-eyed, as Mike beautifully describes all of them leaving and all of them forgetting. Yeah. And it is so bittersweet. It is kind of saccharine, but it is, I found, quite moving because- You leave things behind. The older you get, the the more you move on. The people you meet, the the way your life moves forward. You leave people and places behind. And there is something I think that is quite beautiful and profound about that. And it was um, a really interesting note to end the book on. And as someone who struggled through the book, I was like, "Wow, there's something there." However, they all remember. Yeah. In the movies, and you know what. I really didn't like that. I really didn't like that because it felt they're not challenging anything. It's like, no, we're just buds again. And the heartbreaking part of adulthood is all of the things that can happen to us that fall away. The people who are once so important to us, we don't talk to anymore. Like all of those things that change as we grow up and we go older, this film posits something that is... Generally unattainable, that is not truly real and is way less complicated and less beautiful than the reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and to be fair, like, none of the rest of the film has set it up to be beautiful, complicated, and challenging in any way. So, why don't they fucking all remember each other and get on a WhatsApp group
1: chat? Like, lol dairy remember when we bullied that clown to death yeah yeah no I'm glad you picked up on that because I always thought it was so harrowing to me that they all got to go on and forget and be successes in their careers and yet Mike had to bear this burden of remembering and you know I think even Bill says like you were the lighthouse keeper and I kind of feel like shit about that it's nice to have that sequence where he gets to hang that up
0: yeah like all everything begins to disappear and he's like i'm going to do something else now i'm
1: going to do something else now yeah case closed so like the bit of romance the human
0: romance not not the run and train the yeah. actual <laughs> romance of humanity of these weird fucking creatures that we are on this planet yeah. is completely erased in the films these yeah. you know high grossing films and it is like i hate it just hate it.
1: Yeah. Pennywise and the entity of it has an unsatisfactory conclusion and so do the losers. And so everything is just kind of like, well, losers, aren't we all? Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Oh, really stoked. Our friend killed himself. I love that this movie is the highest grossing. I love that that was trivia. I love, 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 love. I love- That I got to say my piece about this, Alex.
0: I love that I got to be present for this because I had a feeling it was going to go in this direction, but it was so much more impressive.
1: I feel like I've had my say and I feel like I haven't been attemptedly contractually silenced. (laughs) Warner Brothers isn't going to sue us. I don't care. It's worth (laughs) it. You never signed the contract. I I never signed shit. (laughs) Note listeners, never sign shit if Mm -hmm. you can get away with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, I loved looking back on this story. I still love this story. I still love the miniseries. I love all the problematic bits. And I fucking hate those remakes with the fire of a thousand suns. If there is a cinematic hill I will die on, it is that those movies are garbage. And if you loved them, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. If you sorry. love
0: these movies and you made it this far, like, God bless. Tip yeah. Tip of the hat. Like, no well kidding.
1: done couldn't do it like good for you and just engaging in, in different things so but I, I will pledge that I have grown from this I've gotten it out of my system Oh shit. and I will be a mature academic podcaster from here on in
0: well I don't know if we can be that mature
1: mature uh
0: because we are going to for our November episode we're going to talk about this is an academic term some sexy fucking movies
1: yes we are So,
0: for November, we're going back to vampires. Turn the lights down low. Take the garlic off your doors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Invite them in because we're talking about the hunger and only lovers left alive. Can't wait. It's gonna be hot.
1: Vampires are fun to talk about, whether they're teenage, violent, sexy, they're sexy. They're sexy and they're lovers. Like, this is like, we're delving into real emotional territory with these films. I'm excited. Look at us. We're getting soft in our old age. Yeah, we are. Yeah. So, that is your homework for next episode. In the meantime, don't you dare forget about our new merch because you guys. You guys, I am so happy to see that ever since we launched, you guys are every bit as excited about it as we are. The merch for our class of 2023 year is out and it is Enquiable, it's so cool. Again, it was done by Johnny, who is at
0: the last Johnny with one N on the left um, on Instagram. We link him in all our posts, so um, you can find him there. He does such great work, and we were so pleased to get to work with him on this. And um, just seeing all of you getting your merch, wearing it, we have our merch incoming,
1: so we'll be we'll be rocking that as well. Please continue to tag us because it yeah. is giving me life. It gives me life that we incorporated a negative iTunes review into the design. Ugh. Feminist drivel, guys, let us own that all together. That is going to be up until... End of the year. End of the year. Yeah. So it's a limited time, so don't snooze on it. You'll be so sorry. Every single year, we get emails from people who are so, so sorry. And there's just. And you can, can get do. a
0: mug, you can get a tote bag, you can get all kinds of shit. Whatever you want. I'm getting all of it because yeah. I
1: love this
0: design. Yeah. It's so cool. Um, so that will be linked in the show notes, of course. Uh, you know, follow us where we're at um don't forget about patreon (laughs) don't forget patreon there's a lot of fun stuff in there oh gosh just we just really hope you're enjoying spooky season yeah yeah we hope uh you're watching good stuff and having good times and finding some time for yourself
1: to do something that um scares you go beat up a clown in a sewer yeah do it just call him a clown He'll curl up and shrivel up and die like a fucking leech with salt on it. Fuck, I hate these movies. Okay, we need to end this now. <laughs>
0: until we ruin all of our chances with all the SARS guards. Office hours are
1: closed.
0: Can you feel it? See it? Hear it today? If you can't, then it doesn't matter anyway. The fast. and it feels so good it's like walking the glass it's so good cool. so hip it's right it's so groovy it's
1: these movies. The-